Please take a copy of the Word of God and turn to the book of Luke. Find Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. Luke chapter 7, verse 24. If you're a visitor, you have, and for all of us, the the passage we're going to be looking at with some of its details will be in the bulletin handout too if you want to use that resource. Luke chapter 7. Our text this morning specifically will be verses 29 through 35. Let's pray. Father, we are a weak and needy people. We're in need of your word. We are in need of repentance from sin and self. We're in need of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts to understand this passage today. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would help us. We pray with the psalmist, all of us together as a church, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, show us, Holy Spirit, our rock. Show us our redeemer a Savior who is greater than all of our sins. Thank you so much for your word. Help us as we come to it now. Make your word to speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For those of you who know me, you know that I like to plan things. I like to have a list of things to do. You can check it off. I like to have a digital notepad to save certain things. I like to have a calendar. I like to work a system out to plan long-term and short-term goals. But my plans often fail. They often fall short of what I would like to do. But, not so with God. Not so with God. God has a purpose. God has a plan. He has a plan that, believe it or not, has been determined from before times eternal. It's incredible to think about that. He has a plan to rescue and redeem a people for his own glory. A people that are dead in trespasses and sins. This is a plan of the triune God of all of the universe. The Father chose a people. The Son came to earth to to redeem that people from their sins. And the Holy Spirit in time calls that people to respond to the good news of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question I have and that Luke has for us in our passage this morning is an important one. Are you part of God's plan to redeem a people? Are you part of the people of God? Here's the question. Are you in on this? Are you in? Have you responded to the invitation to be part of God's plan of salvation? Or are you waiting, standing on the fence? Well, there's only two ways to respond. There's two ways to react to God's plan of salvation. Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. He gives us two options. There's no middle ground. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or as Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, 
and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Either you receive or you reject God's plan to save you through Jesus. You reject it or you receive God's plan to save you through Jesus. Now, in our passage that you're, you're, you've turned to in Luke chapter 7, that whole passage that was read in the Scripture reading, verses 18 through 35, is about John the Baptist, really. And we've been reflecting on John the Baptist, that great preacher that paved the way to Jesus. At this time in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison for being faithful to God, and he's struggling with doubt that Jesus is the coming one. And so he sends two disciples to Jesus to say, are you the coming one? And Jesus responds to John the Baptist's doubts with immediate works of power and then Scripture to back it up that this is indeed the Messiah. Now go back and tell John this. And then he turns to the people and he defends John's reputation. Because the people were saying, look, if this guy's a great prophet and a great preacher, why is he rotten in jail? He's failed in his ministry. And that's where we pick it up in verse 24. So look at Luke chapter 7, verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Jesus did. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's where we left off last week. And we are to remember here that Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, yes, he's in jail. Yes, he's struggling with doubt. But John the Baptist is the real deal. He's the real deal. And, and if this is the case, then John was absolutely correct to prepare people's way to Jesus, okay, by, by preaching repentance from sin and self-righteousness and, and, and saying, now look, right there, there he is, behold, it's Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's plan, you see was to send a messenger ahead of Jesus to prepare the hearts of people, to remove those obstacles of self-righteousness that got in the way of seeing sin so that people could repent and trust in Jesus for salvation. And this is important for Jesus to defend and to explain the ministry of John the Baptist at this point because if you reject John the Baptist, then you have rejected Jesus Christ. And if you reject both John and Jesus, bottom line, you reject God's gracious plan of salvation. You're saying, I'm out. You see, God's plan was to break into the darkness of this world through the testimony of John the Baptist. He was not the light, but he was to testify of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read it in John chapter 1 and verse 6. Listen to this. This is God's plan and how John the Baptist and Jesus are, are part of it at this time in history. There came a man, verse 6 of John chapter 1, sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The light of Jesus has come into the world. The world knows of Jesus. The light of Christ shines indiscriminately on the lost, 
on, on, on all people. The light of truth shines on them. You either receive the light and you come to the light or you hide under a stone like a spider afraid of the light. You either receive it or reject it. And this is exactly what we see in our passage in the next verse in Luke chapter 7. Take a look at then our passage. Let's read it. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. So after hearing all this, verse 29, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. And then Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? That's kind of a negative thing to say, the men of this generation. And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Each person will either receive or reject God's plan of salvation. There's no middle ground, there's no in between. So this morning, we're going to unpack this very challenging passage, and we're going to follow the logic of this passage and try to unpack mankind's reaction to God's plan of salvation. So first, in verses 29 and 30, let's look and let's get kind of the big picture, and then Jesus dives down. Number one, then, the responses, the responses to God's plan of salvation. There's only two. Number one, receiving God's plan. We see that in verse 29. Receiving God's plan. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And so... People were listening in that crowd, were listening to Jesus as he turned to them. And, and the, the tax collectors and, and the common people were amening Jesus as he defended the character and clarified the calling of John the Baptist. The crowd, especially the tax collectors, the sinners in the crowd, heard his words And the text says, literally in verse 29, this is a strange passage. Just listen to what the text says. It literally says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they justified God. They justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. In fact, I think the sense of this is is captured really well by the uh, NIV translation which says, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. So the sense of this is is that the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus speak about John, agreed that God's way is right. You see, The Holy Spirit was working in people who had gone out to to hear the preaching of John the Baptist. Not all of them, but God was saving people. And and they they were coming to understand who they were and who Jesus was. And so when when John the Baptist said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They didn't say, You are rude. And I can't believe you said that. They said things like, I know. That's right, I'm evil through and through. I, I feel it. I can't run from it. When, they, when John the Baptist said, there's wrath coming because of sin, they said, that's right. 
I feel it coming. You are right, God. You are just God. I am a sinner. I have disobeyed you. I have, I have lived for myself. I cannot figure it out. I cannot achieve the righteousness that I need. God, you are just in this plan. You are just to condemn me forever in my sin. And when John the Baptist says things like, we must bear fruits in keeping with repentance, when the, the, when the spirits work and the, <laughs> that person says, you're right, God. You're right about that. It doesn't make sense, this superficial re- religious, religious um, externalism. It makes sense that God would, my heart is wicked. I need a new heart. They feel that truth. I need your forgiveness. I need a heart change. I've got to turn from my sin. I've got to turn to the Messiah. You're right about me, John. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And when John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they also said, ah, there's the justice of God. There's the right man of God. There he is. I behold him. I need him. They were, they, God was right about them, and God was right about their, the Messiah. He sent the right one to save them from their sins. They acknowledge God was right. And the evidence was that of that was that they submitted, those who were, the Spirit was working and they were repenting from their sin and trusting in Jesus, they evidenced that by submitting to the baptism of John. Because that was a baptism of repentance. They had repented, so they went through with it. It reminds me a little bit of David. Remember David in the Old Testament, his sin against Bathsheba? It took a year or so. Nathan came to him, and he repents in Psalm 51. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now listen to what David says. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now listen, so that you are justified. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is the sense of our passage right there. You are right about me, God. And so for these tax collectors who heard, they, really, they were poor in spirit. Right? They were, they were humbled before God. They felt their sin. They hungered and thirsted for righteousness because the Spirit was at work. And at the heart of that, it's saying, God, you're right. I need to be a part of this salvation. I, I, I need you. I need this salvation. I want rescue. And that was the Holy Spirit through the preaching of John the Baptist preparing the hearts of people to receive the Messiah. Does this make sense? Let me just say it and summarize it. So you, this is important. In other words, John the Baptist, through the work of the Holy Spirit, prepared the hearts of these people to receive God's purpose to save a people for his own glory. The evidence was true repentance from sin and faith in the coming one. And the evidence was that, of that faith, was being baptized with the baptism of John. And every true Christian in this room feels, feels this. It's the testimony of every Christian. God, you're right about me. I need you. I am a sinner through and through. I am. I can't. I've failed. I cannot earn my salvation. I need Jesus. And, and I get it. It doesn't make sense that I get to be a hypocrite. Just name the name of Christ, have my fire insurance, and live like the devil. That doesn't seem right. God, you're right. You're right about me, and you're right about Jesus, and you're right about this salvation. This is what it looks like. This is a saving response to God's plan of salvation. But it leads us then to the bad news, the second response, rejecting God's plan. Verse 30. So receiving or rejecting God's plan. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Okay? So you can receive this, but you can also reject God's plan of salvation. And, and instead of receiving Christ as Savior and Lord, you decide to be your own Savior and Lord. 
Now, notice it was the Pharisees and the lawyers singled out who rejected God's plan of salvation. The evidence of that was that many of the Pharisees and the lawyers didn't submit to the baptism of John. They wouldn't do it. Now, the Pharisees were, remember, the Pharisees, i got to be quick here, the Pharisees were the religious elite, the best of the best, the, expert, the experts in religion and Judaism. And they were very sincere, and they worked super hard to please God. And they felt that God would look at their works and accept them, that God would take their family name as Jews and accept them because they kept the law and they were good people. And the lawyers were the legal experts of the day, and they felt their knowledge of the law would get them into heaven. But the point of fact is Jesus says that they have rejected God's plan of salvation. They have rejected God's purpose for them. How did they reject it? I'll I'll tell you. The Word of God came and landed upon hard hearts. Hearts were not made soft by the Spirit. And so the Word of John the Baptist was rejected. They rejected it. John tries to dig through the Word of God and prepare the heart for Jesus. And it just fell on really, really hard hearts. They were not humbled to see that God is right to judge them forever in hell for their attitudes and their motivations of sin, their outward actions of sin, all of their greed, all their jealousy. They didn't want to see it. They wouldn't see it. And they even went as far as to say, how dare you baptize us? This baptism is for Gentile sinners that are filthy and they need to be washed and come into Judaism. And how dare you baptize us? as the religious leaders. We are Jews. We have Abraham as our father, and they were not willing to see their sin. They said this, God, you're not right about me, and you're not right about Jesus. I disagree with you about myself. I'm not as bad as that you say that I am. I'm not that bad. I'm a good guy. Sincere. And the evidence that God had rejected, that they had rejected God's plan of salvation, is they did not submit to the baptism of John the Baptist. They didn't get baptized because they weren't willing to repent. They did not see their need of repentance. They did not see their need of forgiveness. I'm telling you, sometimes the most religious in this world miss the most important issue of all the heart. And the need to turn from sin in repentance and trust in Christ. In this country, people say, I'm a patriot. I'm a good neighbor. I go to church. Don't tell me that I'm a bad person. But true Christianity flows from a broken heart. It flows from a broken heart and a mind that says, God, you are right about me. I need you through and through. Why do people miss this? Why do people reject God's purpose for themselves? Why do they not admit and and, and confess their need for Jesus and the gospel? Why are people so ready and willing to, to roll the dice and and try to make it on their own without Jesus when they know good and well that heaven and hell are hanging in the balance. Why? Think about that. Why? Why do we want to knife our own souls? Well, uh, J.C. Ryle once said, quotes, every man possesses a power to ruin himself forever in hell impotent and weak as we are for everything which is good, we are naturally potent for that which is evil, end quotes. So what it is, is it's sin within our souls. Sin has lied to us. Sin has manipulated us. Sin has promised us the good life, and we love pleasure, we love comfort, we're entertained to death. Kent Hughes is right. Most people reject the plan of salvation 
and, and this is kind of how sin deceives us and manipulates because we're just so familiar with it all. We're just so familiar with walk-the-aisle religion. We're just so content with shallowness in Christianity so that we can have the world. We, we love the doctrine of self-esteem. We don't like the doctrine of sin. And people just don't understand the, the depth and the radical depravity and nature of sin. They just can't swallow the bad news that, that they are, God, you are right when you judge me forever in a place called hell. I mean, who's really saying, I justify God with that statement? God, you are right about me. They just don't think they're worthy of that. They're self-righteous and they're gripped by sin. And so I'd ask each of us this morning, those who are listening, every adult that's here today, every college and career age adult that's here today, every teen that's here today, every child that's here today, listen carefully. Are you just going through the motions? Are you just putting on an external show? Do you just want to get your pastors and your parents off your back? I'm telling you, this is an important passage. You can know the truth, but your heart and your flesh can be feeding you lies from so many different sources. And this passage tells us that a line has been drawn in the sand about God's purpose and plan for salvation. You either receive it or you reject it. There's no middle ground. So I would pray that you would agree with God, that you would agree with God in what he says in his word, that you would agree with God about your own sin, that you would agree with God about the need for repentance. God, your way is right. You would agree with God, God, I ought to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I fall short. That you would agree with God that the passing pleasures of sin are not worthy to be compared to eternal hell. Not worthy. You would agree with God about that. But let's admit it. The pleasure of sin does wear off. Misery floods in. To reject God's purpose of salvation from yourself will result in never-ending torment in a place called hell because God is just in this plan. He is just. He is the eternal one. He is the holy one. He is the eternal holy one. And to spit in the face of the eternal holy one, it is right. It is right. It's hard to even think of it, but it is right. God, you're justified in eternal separation from those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the responses to God's plan of salvation are either receiving or rejecting. But now Jesus, in the logic of this passage, has some words to those Pharisees who reject God's plan of salvation. Now let's follow this logically into the second point, the rebuke for rejecting God's plan of salvation. Number two, the rebuke for rejecting God's plan of salvation. Um, Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So Jesus is now picking up, he's speaking to the, to the men of this generation, he's speaking not to the tax collectors here and those who received it, but to the Pharisees and the lawyers and those like him. And he's saying, let me tell you a little story about what you're like. Now, this is a tricky parable, so let me just try to explain this. You know, kids in our day like to, to play, right? They play in parks, they like to play uh, 
maybe soldier or like to play house or like to play dolls. They like to play make-believe. Now, they didn't have parks and playgrounds in those days, so the kids would play in the open area marketplace. And you know what kid, how kids are. They like to grow up. And so they like to mimic things that adults do and do grown-up things and play grown-up make-believe. And so you have this picture of the marketplace, right? Mark in that culture and a bunch of kids playing different games. Do you see it? And so on the one hand, you've got this group of kids that's, that kind of instigate the games. Hey, and they're going to play, the first game they're going to play is they're going to play weddings. They're going to play wedding. Okay? Weddings in that day were huge celebrations, sometimes lasted for a whole week. There's music and there's dancing and there's food and celebration into the late, late hours of the night. So some of the kids are saying, hey, everybody, let's play a wedding. And they, and they start to play the flute and they start to do that, that whole wedding thing. Sally, you can be the... But then there's some kids in the marketplace they want to play along. They're killjoys. They're stubborn kids. I don't want to play a wedding. I'm not doing it. We played the flute and you did not dance. They're unwilling. Well, the kids just want to play, so they, you know, they're not going to give up. So let's try another one. You didn't like that? Let's play funeral. Funerals, also major events in that culture for the whole family. Some of the kids try to play that. They mimic the public mourning and all the professional um, musicians that would come, the public procession to the burial site. Some of the things that we saw with the healing of the widow's son at Nain, all of that. They mimic that in the marketplace. They're playing. So they say, hey, they didn't like that part. Let's, let's try this. But those annoying kids, they don't want to participate in in the make-believe wedding. They don't want to participate in the make-believe funeral. They don't want to play. They want to have their own way. We sing a dirge, and you did not weep. These are these bratty kids, these bratty kids in the marketplace, don't want to play either game. We refuse to play. The first group of children trying to... The happy, fun- the happy weddings and the funerals. Your funerals are too gloomy. We're not going to play. Their weddings are too happy. They're super self-centered kids, super picky, super proud, super bratty. They won't play. So what's the point of the parable? Look at verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. On the other hand, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you've got those, especially the Pharisees, those who rejected God's purpose for themselves. John the Baptist must have a demon. The guy is crazy. I mean, they look at him and they said, he doesn't, he's eating locusts and honey. He doesn't conform to societal norms. He spent his whole life out in the desert. He was over the top with his preaching, calling people to repentance, preaching judgment even to Jews. I mean, this guy's trying to baptize Jews. He doesn't care about the family name of Israel. He doesn't care about the fact that the Old Testament says that Israel's blessed. The Jews are blessed. Steps all over the Old Testament, absolutely insane, always judgment, 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 wrath, 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 all of this hard preaching stuff. This guy must have a demon. But then the Son of Man has come. Fully God, fully man, and he came eating and drinking. He came fully participating in the societal norms in the sense that he would go and participate in all of those things. He didn't isolate himself out in the wilderness with strange clothing. Jesus would talk to anyone and everyone. He would interact with them. He'd go into their home. Doesn't matter who invited him, even those who hated him. I go, I'll go. We'll see that next time. 
He'd go into their home. He'd eat and drink with them. You remember, he went into the home of Matthew. Matthew is called to follow Christ, a tax collector, scum of the earth tax collector. And Matthew's so excited about his salvation, the joy of it, he invites all the scumbags, because that's all the friends he had, over to his house. And Jesus is the guest of honor. And Jesus goes. And that really, really irritated the Pharisees, that celebration. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came, he came with mercy. He came showing pity. He touched lepers. He had compassion. He touched coffins with dead people, even though the law said it was defiling. He healed the slaves of Roman Gentiles. He helped outcast widows. Jesus came and his ministry was characterized at this time, at this time, preaching mercy, preaching forgiveness. The joy of the Messiah is, is here. The new wine is here. Why would you mourn and cry? The bridegroom is here, kind of stuff. I'm here. Hope has come. Light is shining to the darkness. I'm preaching the good news to the poor. I'm proclaiming release to the captives. The blind will recover their sight. Those who are oppressed will be set free. I am here. It is here. The favorable year of the Lord. The Sabbath rest has come in me. It's the year of jubilee. Jesus came speaking. It's glorious, right? Nope. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here's the deal with the point of this piracy. I think you're getting it. Those who reject God's plan, at the end of the day, they're never satisfied. They're never going to be satisfied. John the Baptist, too strict too separated, too judgmental, all this weeping and repentance stuff, it's not for me. Oh, on the other hand, there's the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ, joy and compassion and pity. Nope, 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 nope. You you do the dirge, you got the John the Baptist dirge thing going on, that emphasis, right? Nope, not having, oh, you got the whole wedding flute thing going on, Jesus, right? Two different almost styles of ministry. Nope. Nope, that guy, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's an apostate. He should be stoned according to Deuteronomy because he associates with tax collectors and sinners. And they are not content with any form of ministry. They don't like wrath. They don't like compassion. They're malcontents. They're know-it-alls and they find fault no matter what and that spirit lives on and that is the spirit of those who will not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ they're always those who ultimately reject the gospel are going to have to find a reason to do so they're going to they can't justify God so they got to justify themselves And so they do. They're just criticizing everything as a scapegoat for their own rebellion. I mean, let's just just unpack this for a minute. They look at Christianity and they say things like this. You've seen it. And there's so many examples we could give. They're just so judgmental, those Christians. They're so judgmental. They're just so strict and judgmental. Lighten up. Get with the program. Get with the culture. That's one card that they will play. Oh, on the other hand, if it doesn't work to reject that game in the marketplace, they'll play the other card. They're just so weak and smiley and sentimental and joyful. It's so annoying. I mean, to think that they can say that they know that they're going to heaven. Now, all of a sudden, they believe in heaven, but they'll still use it. To think that they're so proud and full of themselves, to be filled with joy and hope that they're going to go to heaven. Oh, they got it all figured out. 
And then, that doesn't work. The judgments, I don't like that. I don't like the joy either. And if that doesn't work, they play the hypocrisy card. The Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, which just argues that there's a real deal. If there's a hypocrite, there's a real deal. There's a real thing. The real issue is that people who reject God's way of salvation as too strict or, or too weak are trying to protect their own self-interest. They don't want to have their sin exposed, so they play the, their weak card or the hypocrite card or the won't-listen card or the judgmental card. They will not say, God, you are right about me. You're right about me. You're right about Jesus. They don't say that. They say, God, you're wrong. I'm not like that. God, you're wrong. In your word, you're wrong. I'm not like that. And you can't tell me that Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You can't tell me that. What about the Muslims? What about the Hindus? You can't tell me that marriage is between one woman and one man. What about all those people that I know of same sex that love each other and want to be married? It's too strict, too judgmental. Too much, too strict. I love what J.C. Ryle says, and I want you to take a moment and prepare to listen to this quote. Take a minute. As I look at the clock, I realize I don't have a minute, so let's listen now. Listen carefully to J.C. Ryle, an old preacher from 1800s, I believe. Quotes, the plain truth is that the natural heart of man hates God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It dislikes his law, his gospel, and his people. It will always find some excuse for not believing and obeying. The doctrine of repentance is too strict for it. The doctrine of faith and grace too easy for it. John the Baptist goes too much out of the world. Jesus Christ goes too much into the world. And so the heart of man excuses itself. The heart of man excuses its, itself for sitting still in its sins. End quotes. So we've seen the responses to God's plan of salvation. We've seen the rebuke for rejecting God's plan of salvation. And then a huge blessing, important at the end. Verse 35, the result, the result of receiving God's plan of salvation. The result of receiving God's plan of salvation. Verse 35, yet, Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And the first child that we're going to look at that vindicates the gospel is a sinful woman who rains tears on the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what does he mean by this? The result for receiving God's plan of salvation. Now, this is an interesting, in, in the Greek text, watch this, verse 35, catch this, the word vindicated translated vindicated in New American Standard that we have, is the same Greek word as in verse 29, justified God. Same Greek word. So basically, he's saying this. Those tax collectors, Matthew and the disciples and all every believer who's felt their sin and turned from it and trusted in Jesus for their salvation, the children of God, they are going to show the wisdom of the plan and purposes of God that salvation is real, that it's no sham, that it works. They are going to show it. 
how, just show how wise it is to receive the ministry of John the Baptist, to receive the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, just how wise it is to behold the Lamb of God, to follow him, the one who takes away the sins of the world. That wisdom is wise, and the proof of that is going to be a vindication that that choice is wise. Now, just listen, let's get this. So powerful. How do you know if you make a wise decision about a house purpose, uh, purchase? Here's how you know you've made a wise decision about a house purchase. Well, a few weeks or months down the road, maybe a year down the road, you, you've made a wise decision if you can afford that house. The house has been a solid house. It's working really well to raise your family in. You're enjoying it, and you're able to do the work of hospitality in it. And so the wisdom of that choice is vindicated over time. Do you see that? In the same way, that's true of those who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who truly receive Christ and repent from their sin, they are changed from the inside out. They are the children of God. They are, now listen, think of the Sermon on the Mount that we just went through. They're different. They have the heart of God now, a heart of mercy, a heart of compassion, a heart that loves enemies, an internal heart that is consistent with external words and hands. They have integrity. They have a heart that says, Lord, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. Just speak the word, Lord. Like that, remember that centurion, just speak the Lord, the, the word, Lord, and it will be done. And, and in their life, over time, their life and will will vindicate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will confound the culture. You will shut the mouth of skeptics for wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is what, G- what uh, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. 1 Peter 2 verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Watch this. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, or like he has a demon, or he's gluttonous and a drunkard and a friend of sinners, so that in the thing in which they, uh, they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Kent Hughes is right. I like what he says. Quotes, divine wisdom has undoubtedly been proved right by your experience too. And the outworking of God's wisdom in your life is a powerful and tantalizing testimony to a cynical world. End quotes. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. That is the result of receiving God's plan of salvation. We looked at the responses to God's plan of salvation, the rebuke for rejecting God's plan of salvation, but then the result for receiving God's plan of salvation. And so as believers in here, I think we resonate with this passage, don't we? Right? We say, we can truly say God's way is right. Can't we? God's way is right. And we can actually look back over time, looking in our, our, how the Lord has worked in our lives in so many different ways, hard times, good times, every possible thing. We can say God does save. Oh, God does save. He is at work. And we bless God for showing us our sin for the first time, of showing us the glory of Jesus for the first time. But we also bless God that he's Lord of our lives and we long to be pleasing for him or thankful to God for his spirit that he has given us. So we don't mock this weak, uh, weak Jesus. We, we don't mock him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We say things in worship and celebrate this fact. We say Jesus Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. We say things like hallelujah, what a savior. So, as we close, 
Where do you stand this morning? Have you responded to the invitation to be a part of God's plan of salvation? Or are you sitting on the fence? Are you coming up with excuses to sit still in your sin? And I'm praying for you, and I would ask you to come to someone if the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. It's time today to get saved, to receive God's plan of salvation. You don't have to earn it over a period of months. You need to receive it today. Receive that forgiveness. Receive that forgiveness. Please make today the day of salvation. I'm telling you, if you do, you're going to be so thankful because you're going to be brought into God's purpose and God's plan to redeem a people for his own glory. You're brought into this. And what a grace it is if he's showing you this even today. It hurts. It hurts to come to the end of yourself and to realize, I can't get rid of this darkness and this sin. I'm tired of hiding it, and it's real, and I can't free myself of it. And you feel that pain of a dirge. To weep like that, like you're, like you're right there. But also, I'm telling you, the joy of forgiveness is right around the corner. You see, it's both the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's both. What a grace it is to, to weep like you're at a funeral because of your sin, but then to realize, wait a minute, Wait a minute, there's a grace that is greater than all my sin. There's a Savior who can conquer my sin to weep like you're at the funeral, but then to see Jesus and to dance like you're at a wedding because he's forgiven you all of your sin. What a joy to receive the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. And I'm telling you, if you're not sure you're happy about it now because emotions don't save you, Jesus does. But I'll tell you one thing. Trust me on this. The wisdom of your choice will vindicate itself by her children. And what is the chief vindication? Are you ready? It is love. And to that we turn next time.